Well, I'm sure many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his Chronicles of Narnia and probably his most uh, famous one of those books, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Some of you younger people, I'm sure you've read it. Perhaps it's one of your favourites, perhaps one of you grown-ups. So you've got a battered copy on your bookshelf and it's one of your favourites too. It's the first book in the series, the most well-known. There is a line in that book, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Mr Beaver is preparing Susan and Lucy to meet Aslan for the first time. And Mr Beaver explains Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Who all said Susan, I thought he was a man. I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then both girls ask the question, is he safe? <laughs> safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Well, our passage this evening teaches us that God is good, but he isn't safe. We have a dangerous God in this passage before us tonight. This scene changes quickly. It changes from joy and noisy celebration as the Ark of the Covenant is being transported to Jerusalem to sudden silence and to shock as Uzzah lies dead on the ground. And if we're honest, I don't know about you, I'm sure some of you instinctively, you may not like to admit it, but you may have the same feeling I've had in the past when reading this. We feel about this episode a bit like David did. We feel it's unfair. We feel that Uzzah was treated overly harshly because after all he was only trying to steady the ark and to stop it falling off, wasn't he? And perhaps verse 8, we share the, uh, David's anger here. But do we share, verse 9, David's fear? What was it that was so wrong here? I don't know which version you're all following in, in tonight. Um, what does it say here in your one? Um, it does say the same thing in the New King James. It talks in verse 7 about Uzzah's error doesn't it? His error. The NIV calls it his irreverent act. It sort of interprets it a bit. It was a failure to appreciate the holiness of God. You see, we think what Uzzah did wasn't that serious, but God thought it was serious enough for Uzzah to be struck down on the spot. And clearly, if we have problems then with this passage... The problem is with us and not with God. So as we work our way through this passage tonight, I would like us to notice three things. Firstly, the presence that we must reverence or respect. The presence we must reverence. What was the, the Ark of the Covenant? Well, we read all about it in Exodus 25. It was this item of furniture, really, wasn't it? It was, it was a wooden chest that was overlaid with, with gold. It was the only item of furniture that was in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, the, the most holy place. And inside this chest, there were 
two stone tablets uh, of the Ten Commandments. Remember what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai when he uh, wrote them, gave them to him. Uh, So those tablets are inside this chest. And according to to Hebrews chapter 9, two other things were inside this Ark of the Covenant. There was a golden urn holding some of the manna that sustained the Israelites in the wilderness. And there was Aaron's staff that budded. Um, do you remember in, in also in, in, in the wilderness there? This was obviously then much more than just an item of furniture. This was more than just a wooden box, even if it had a bit of gold over it. The contents alone pointed to God's holiness and to God's power. Manna from heaven to feed people in the desert, a staff that buds, all these things pointed to God in his holiness and his power. But there was much more to the ark than its contents. The ark, if you uh, know your Old Testament and you know your, uh, your Exodus in particular, the ark was the place where God met and spoke with Moses. And on top of the ark was this uh, solid slab of gold out of which were carved two, two angels, two cherubim with their wings touching and their faces uh, bowed down in reverence. And you'll know it was called the, the mercy seat. It was the mercy seat, or some versions call it the, the atonement cover. And once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would would go into the most holy place in the tabernacle and he would sprinkle the blood of an animal sacrifice on the mercy seat for the atonement of the people's sins. And it was here from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that God would come down and he would speak to Moses. So the ark then was God's throne. Not only was it symbolic of his of his holiness and his power, it was the place of his presence. It was where God condescended to come and talk to Moses, to reveal himself and to make himself known. And we see this in the way that Moses refers to the ark in Numbers and chapter 10 and verse 35, where it says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. And whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord. So Moses looked at the ark and he saw God. Not that he thought by any stretch of the imagination that God could be reduced to a wooden box, but simply where the ark was, God was. So the ark was to be treated with respect. It was to be treated reverently. It wasn't to be touched, and it wasn't even to be seen. In fact, to avoid handling it directly, There were rings on either side of it through which these wooden poles were supposed to be pushed and the ark was then to be transported on these poles and even then only by a particular branch of the Levites. What's more, whenever the ark was moved, Numbers chapter 4 says it was to be hidden from view. 
It was supposed to be covered up with, with animal skins and there was supposed to be a blue cloth over it uh, so you couldn't see it. Remember, when it was in the tabernacle, only the high priest could go in there because it was in the Holy of Holies and everyone else was too sinful, too um, excluded to be able to go in there. So not only was the ark not to be touched, it wasn't even to be seen. And we need to have both those things in our minds when we read this passage, because on both these counts, the way that David transported this ark was in breach of that. He, he broke it. Uh, flagrantly, God's command, he, he, he broke. He was transferring it on a cart, even if it was a ritually clean cart, it's not what God commanded. And Uzzah may only have been trying to prevent the ark from falling off this cart, but it should never have been on the cart in the first place. And this is where we must begin if we're to understand why God was so angry here. Because the fact is, and it's the same for you and me tonight, coming here to church, that we must approach God on his own terms. You might think, well, why can't I do it my way? Why can't I come any old how? But God has given his commands of how we are to approach him. And we are not at liberty to use our intelligence or our ingenuity to disregard what God has said and come before him as we see fit. Remember verse 5, that this uh, David um, here comes before the Lord. He comes before the Lord. You may think you've come to just a building tonight, but we have come before the Lord. He is holy and we must treat him as such. The context here it is one of worship, isn't it? Bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't just the, the political capital uh, of David's kingdom. It was the religious capital, the religious centre as well. So David's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Here was an occasion to rejoice in. Uh, God himself was coming to live in the midst of his people. That's what this meant. God was coming to live in the midst of his people. Have that in your minds of who lives in the midst of his people today. There is joy to be had in God's presence, but we must not, we dare not come to him in the wrong way. We come to church tonight to worship God, but we dare not come before him lightly. The author of Ecclesiastes says this, doesn't he, in chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. How many of you think about that on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night? To guard your steps when you come here. There is a tendency, I think, uh, even in, in, or perhaps especially in, in evangelical circles, you know, there's a lot to praise God for in evangelical circles, but sometimes, can't we, we can be so seeker-friendly, so wanting people to feel comfortable 
in church and have a good time here that our approach to God isn't serious enough. God is love, we say. God is compassionate and he is kind. He is our loving Heavenly Father and that is all true. But we are so concerned to stress how good God is that we forget he isn't safe. Our God is a consuming fire. David speaks about him in 2 Samuel chapter 22 in these terms. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of him. The Lord thundered from heaven. See, that's the God that you and I come to tonight. When God appeared to Israel on Mount Sinai, there was thunder and there was lightning and there were trumpets that were so loud that everyone in the camp trembled. When God warned Moses to get the people ready to meet him, he told them to consecrate themselves and to to wash themselves and to wash their clothes. Moses was even to put (coughs) limits Limits around the mountain, wasn't he, to stop people from even touching it, because whoever touched it would be put to death. Isaiah, when he saw God, cried out, Woe to me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Or take John in his vision when he was in exile on Patmos in Revelation. And when he, was, when he saw God and had his vision of God, he was so filled with terror that he fell at his feet, fell on his feet, on his knees, uh, as though dead, is what we read in Revelation. This is the God we come to tonight. And it's this vision of God that David and Uzzah and the rest of his 30,000 men had lost sight of. And I wonder sometimes if to a large extent many of us have lost sight of it too. An old pastor of mine used to go to a church up in London uh, for many years, was a member there, and a pastor of mine said once... um, I can't remember the exact details, but he saw a billboard as you do outside a church once, and whatever the the the, the words on it um, about the God, he felt they were very casual, very flippant, if you like, in terms of how they were speaking about God. I can't remember the exact phrase, but he he didn't like that. What I do remember was his words when he was preaching to us, and he said, "God is not your mate." God is not your mate. Yes, God has come near to us in Jesus Christ. He is the friend of sinners. He does love us. But we must still approach him with the utmost care and reverence. You know, I think Hebrews 12, some of you might have in your mind, I keep quoting from the Old Testament, and you'll you'll have in your minds, oh, Glenn, but you're talking about Mount Sinai and the Old Covenant, and we're now New Covenant. But, you know, I think Hebrews 12 is a passage that is often misinterpreted. Is that passage, if you remember, that differentiates how people came to God 
um, under the old covenant and how we come to God now under the new. And it says this, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And it seems many people take those words uh, to mean that we no longer need to fear God because in Jesus we come to God casually just as we come to our friends. But that is not the case, at least that's not my reading of that passage because the author goes on to say, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Go home, read that passage carefully and slowly yourselves. But the idea surely is if it was appropriate for people to fear God, and it was at Mount Sinai, when God spoke from heaven, how much more appropriate is it for us to fear Jesus, the judge of all the earth, who has shed his own blood for us? You know, that Hebrew passage is written to Christians, to those read it later, who are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is not a warning for unbelievers, but for believers. And it ends, look at the last verse, it ends by urging them to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That is New Testament. That is Christ. God hasn't changed. The presence we must reverence. Secondly, I'd like us to see the problem we must grasp. And some people, and you would have my sympathies, some people would still object, well, yes, I know God is holy, but why did Uzzah have to die? Why Uzzah and why not David? Uzzah was just a servant, wasn't he, who was, who was carrying out David's command. Didn't David deserve to be punished more? But the fact is, it was Uzzah who touched the ark. And the reason I suggest why we struggle with God's response is that we still don't grasp the sinfulness of our sin. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. We think Uzzah should have heard the voice of God shouting down from heaven, crying, thank you, Uzzah. Instead, he killed him. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth, says Sproul, is an obedient creature. In other words, it's not the ground that is polluted. What is polluted 
is us. You see, however well-intentioned Uzzah may have been, he still sinned against God's command. And God is so holy that his anger rightly burns against it. You see, we look at Uzzah then, and we will rightly say, and we are to say in looking at this passage, well, who then can be saved? If a man as well-intentioned as Uzzah didn't survive... What hope is there for the rest of us? And that is the point. That is the point. Don't get all hot under the collar and indignant over this passage. Ask yourself that question, because that is the point. Who can be saved? It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we don't grasp how polluted we are all of us in the sight of God. We don't grasp how offensive our sin is to him or how justifiably angry God is at our sin because generally speaking, God is very kind and very restrained towards us, isn't he? You know, in this world, these these moments, moments like this, when God's anger breaks out against sin, are very rare. The, the Uzzah moments, if you like, the, the Ananias and Sapphira moments are rare. But just because God is generally very patient with us doesn't mean that we should presume on his mercy. The bottom line is we all deserve what those people God. We believe God was unbelievably, we assume sometimes God was unbelievably unfair on Uzzah when really he is unbelievably patient with everyone else. Uzzah got what we all deserve. We don't see it because God is patient generally with sin, but we need to see these Uzzah moments. We need to see that it's not just our enemies you know we can all identify can't we we can all come up with who are the sinners in our world today who are the people who aren't in church today we can all identify the the enemies of god if you like and say who they are and we have no problem with god's anger breaking out against them but sometimes god's anger breaks out on the good guys too you see we're very happy If you cast your minds or your eyes back, we're very happy to accept God's anger breaking out against the Philistines at Perez Uzzah here in verse 8. Am I getting it the right way around? No, in verse 20 of the last chapter. Uh, He broke out against the Philistines, verse 20 of the last chapter, but we're not so happy, are we, to see it breaking out against Perez Uzzah in verse 8. But you know, God is angry at all sin, whether that's the sin of the people we hate or and that we agree are sinners or whether it's people we like and people who don't seem to us to be sinners at all. People like our friends, people like our families, people like us. Well, how then can we approach such a holy God only in the way that he commands 
which is what David does second time around. He learns the lesson, doesn't he, in verse 13. This time he doesn't transport this ark on, on, on a cart, but he doesn't, it's no longer bouncing around, is it, on a cart, but it is being carried on poles as it should be. What's the relevance of all this to us tonight? Because we don't meet God, do we, by means of an ark? But the same principle still applies. The only way that we can approach God is by coming in the way that he commands. Through his son. Through his son, Jesus Christ. For we read that no one comes to the Father except through him. You see, Jesus fulfills, if you like, everything that the ark represented God revealed himself at the ark, but he reveals himself best of all in Jesus. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The ark was that place of of reconciliation, wasn't it? Where God poured the blood, where the blood was poured over it once once a year on the day of atonement, on the mercy seat. But Jesus poured out his own blood on the cross in order to reconcile us to God. And it was there, at the cross, that God's anger broke out on Jesus in order to reconcile us to God. See, only Jesus can deal with the pollution of our sin. And unless we see, unless you tonight, I don't know you all tonight, Unless you see tonight how vile your sin is before God, even your best efforts, your best words, your best actions, your most Uzzah-like, well-intentioned acts, you will never see your need to come to him. You need the perfect obedience of Christ The presence we must reverence, the problem we must grasp, and lastly, very briefly, our time's almost gone, the blessing we must seek. You're very quiet in here tonight, that's probably good. What are we to do with such a holy God? You see, David's natural inclination was to have nothing to do with him, wasn't it? (laughs) He was afraid and so he sent the ark away. He ran away from God, but in doing so, he missed out on a blessing. The ark went to a foreigner. It went to Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the Lord blessed him, we read, and he blessed his entire household. It was there for three months and and Obed-Edom had all this blessing of God as a result. Obed-Edom honoured and revered the presence of God and in response, God gave him his blessing and only when David saw that verse 12 did he want it for himself and so he did what he should have done all along and he made sure the ark was carried properly and this time the blessing fell on him you see if you come to God in the right way if you come reverently and honorably and obediently then blessing will follow. Don't run away from God. 
Don't say, I don't want a God who's like this, who strikes a man down when all he was trying to do was to steady the ark. I don't want a God like that. Give me a God of my own imagination. I'll have that God. Don't run away from this God. But worship him in the way he has commanded. God comes among his people in order to bless them with life. The trouble with most of us is we want life without the holiness. We want life without the obedience. But God says true life and blessing comes from honouring God. And just because we have a proper fear of God doesn't mean we're all to go around with long faces. We're not to be doomy, gloomy Christians. Joy is right in the presence of God. David is leaping and dancing before God in this passage. Joy is what Michal, his wife, despises here. But the text says that she is wrong. You know, don't ever think we need to be in our conservative churches and we can't show our emotions. We can't be happy and we can't be joyful. The text says Michal is wrong while David is leaping and dancing before God. God judges her for it. Joy in the worship of God isn't wrong. Being happy and, and, and jubilant and celebratory in the presence of God isn't wrong. But we must tread carefully. God and his Christ come, if you like, with a health warning. Handle with care. We dare not neglect such a great salvation, Hebrews 12 tells us, but we must seek the blessing of God. It won't just come to us. We must seek the blessing of God by listening to and following his commands. You know, I began with Aslan. I'm going to finish with him too. Some of you probably like me and you've only ever read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Some of you will have read the whole lot. But in the fourth book of the Narnia series, which is called The Silver Chair, Jill meets Aslan when she is gasping with thirst in a forest. And she hears the, the bubbling of, of a stream nearby, but she is she's horrified to see this uh, the, the terrifying form of Aslan, the lion, beside it. And so like David, she does exactly what David does. She backs off. She pulls away. But to her surprise, Aslan beckons her forward. If you're thirsty, he says, you may drink. And Jill is very thirsty. But Aslan is so scary and so frightening that she doesn't dare go forward and drink. Then you will die of thirst, Aslan replies. Then I suppose I must go and look for another stream, Jill says. But to her shock, Aslan replies, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. Our God is a dangerous God. But there is no other God who can save you or save me 
from dying where the living water flows. And so let us seek him tonight. Seek him reverently, seek him obediently, seek him with your whole heart. Don't decide you don't want a God like this. There is no other God and there is no other God who can save you. But with him, we can drink fully of his blessing. Amen. May the Lord bless.